In the Fuzzy Memories podcast, we celebrate the good, the rad, and the fugly of the 80s and 90s. We're three latchkey kids who made it out alive. And in each episode, we break down all the culture that popped one year at a time. Whether it's the birth of legends. I'm Lyme disease free today and I have Whitney Houston and MTV to thank. (laughs) Or audacious moves. Imagine also the the poor Golden Gate Bridge. You turn 75 and people have a party on you. I don't want that. Or even confusing PSAs. In the stop, drop, and roll. I mean, we would, I assume as an adult, I would catch on fire weekly. All the time! (laughs) We've got a take that will make you laugh. We've also got thoughts on all sorts of random phenomena and the most unmitigated of golf. Why sharks can't be trusted, people can't be trusted, and rivers can't be trusted. (laughs) It's collusion. It's of the highest degree! Uh Uh-huh. You were counseling me to start my remarks with, first of all, bitch. <laughs> that one, everyone in that room would have snapped to attention. It's going to be basically coffee lids, shark revenge, and then maybe like Matt gets. <laughs> we need to do something about him. Join us every other Wednesday to celebrate the hits, the misses, and the misfits of the weirdest decades. If I could tell my 14-year-old self from 1990 that I would be eating in a cheesecake factory in, in Beverly, Beverly Hills, I'd be like, we did it. We, we did it, Joe. We did it. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to Fuzzy Memories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. Hey, Broads and Books listeners. We've got an exciting offer for you. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same prices as you'll find elsewhere, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. And listeners of Broads and Books get three audiobooks for the price of one. To listen, all you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. From there, you check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best local booksellers. We love this deal because we love audiobooks and we love supporting local and indie bookstores. To get your special deal for listening to Broads and Books, go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter Broads and Books, all one word. You can find that URL and the special code in this episode's show notes in your podcast player and on our website. Hello, and welcome to Broads and Books. I'm Amy. And I'm Erin, and this is a special Broads and Books bonus episode. In today's episode, we talk to the author of one of the books that we fell in love with last year. Fell in love hard, Erin. This was very exciting, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, you read this author first. You talked about the book on our show, and then I had to read it, and I am so glad I did. Today on the Broads Talk Books With, we talk to Alex Marzano Lesnevich. I recommended The Fact of a Body in episode 40. And I'm going to be honest, I expected you to fangirl hard, Erin. I expected me to as well, but I think I did okay. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. There were a few moments where I thought your head was going to explode. It would have been worth it. I mean, Mm -hmm. Alex cracked us up and gave us incredible ideas for our next read. And you should just wait for their story of an incredible fan interaction. It's... 
It's so it's so freaking good. Yes. Um, you can find all of the books that Alex mentions in the show notes on your podcast player and our website. Just go ahead and add them all to your to be red pile. Yep. Do it right now. And now here's our interview. So one thing we like to start off with is just, I imagine we're all kind of similar in that we liked to read a ton as kids and teens. Do you have particular memories of a book or several books that really spoke to you as a kid or a teen? Uh, Absolutely. I was just thinking about this the other day that um, what happened in my reading life was that I, I discovered adult books pretty young. Um, in, in first grade, a teacher had a copy of Little Woman on the shelf and, um, I tore through that, didn't quite feel identification with it, but then I read Joe's Boys and, um, was immediately like, this is my jam and, um, kind of never looked back, like just immediately started reading. Um, and for some reason, you know, like, you know, I was too young for this, but I've been inspired um, to see the Tolstoy together that's happening on Twitter where people are reading War and Peace together. And I'm recalling back Kid Me, who um, picked up War and Peace because I saw a Charlie Brown cartoon that made a joke about like War and Peace was like the big doorstopper of a novel. And so Kid Me was like, obviously, that's what I'm going to read. <laughs> um, needless to say, I understood probably not a word, but. Yep. Yes. But um, I, you know, I recall being so confused by all the names. <laughs> um, just, just so many of them. So, many um, of them. so that, um, and then I settled into this habit as an older child of insisting that I would read everything someone wrote in order. Um, wow. Again, books I had no way of understanding. I vividly remember um, Kundra. Like, I vividly remember not the word, but like reading it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was on Nantucket with my family when I finished whatever book it was that I was reading. And I went to one of my favorite bookstores in the world, Nantucket Bookworks, you know, picture this little kid walking in and being like, so has he published anything new? And they were like, <laughs> no. And I was like, great, I'll be back tomorrow to check. And then I went back the next day and I was like, so did anything come out overnight from him? You know, I just had no idea how books worked, right? <laughs> Every day, yeah, that was day they were so sweet. They'd be like, not today, <laughs> maybe tomorrow, but could you try this other thing? So oh, anyway, that's really sweet. <laughs> that's not but I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that as like we get towards summer and there's like summer yes. and Alex who just like didn't understand what they were reading at all. <laughs> That's so funny. I think that's kind of something that a lot of the authors we've talked to share, reading stuff way before we're mentally and physically ready for all of it, but loving it no matter what. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that we've talked about a lot that we hear from people is that maybe some of their love of reading was turned off early on because they struggled with a classic or something that was like a sign through school. And so Amy and I have talked about that that was Moby Dick for us. Oh. But is there a classic that you struggled with or you remember thinking, I don't know about this? Not as a kid, but whenever I read Madame Bovary, I was like, seriously? Do we care? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just yes. I understand I'm supposed to care. I really don't. Um, 
but that's the one I recall in that regard. I will say I was a bit of a totally delinquent student. Like if I wasn't into something, I was, I was just like going to read something else the rest of the time. Oh, that's um, awesome. And I cut class constantly. So, <laughs> so I don't recall having that like adherence to what was assigned, unfortunately. I think it would have been good to learn that skill, early, but I didn't. Uh, I had to learn it later. <laughs> so if any kids are listening to this podcast, go ahead and avoid all the books you yeah. don't like. Yeah. You're going to end up cutting it out. You're going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I think that's a skill that way to just say, no, I'm going to read something else. Like, I wish I learned that early on, you know, being able to just say, yeah, I'm not connecting to this one. I'm going to move on. But I really appreciate that. But at a certain point, I also had to learn that I might actually learn something that I didn't know that I wanted to learn. Like, it turns out when I started actually like going to class and paying attention, you can find out some cool things that way. Sure can. You could be surprised by some stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, around that time or maybe later in life, did you find a book that made you think either I can do this or, ooh, I want to do this. I want to be a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was all I ever wanted to be, but I thought it was like wanting to be a unicorn. <laughs> like it just wasn't a thing that people were. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in law school, and I, I had stopped writing by that point, I should say. I had um, kind of just completely cold turkey stopped writing my senior year of high school, which was strange because I had written a ton before then. Um, and I was just like, nope, I'm, I don't get to do this. That was what I felt like. I don't get to do this. Yeah. And then when I was in law school, I read um, Anthony Doerr's short story collection, The Shell Collector. And I read, um, and this one blew my mind, uh, Martha Cooley's The Archivist, um, which has the line, existence is infinitely cross-referenced. With enough effort, anything can be shown to connect to anything else. Um, wow. Which somehow had that, like, oh, this is how I see the world. Got it. Which is funny because I, like, wrote a book that connects two things that people are fond of telling me are not connected. And I'm working on a book that connects a whole bunch of things that I'm sure people will tell me are not connected. So um, I think that went deep. But that line, um, when I was in law school, I started going to law school during the day and like sneaking out, literally sneaking out of the dorm at night uh, to go take fiction classes secretly. Um, And so those books kind of brought me back to, oh, I want to do this. I really do want to do this. Yeah. I can see that line. Like when you said it, that makes so much sense in reference of the book. Like that's what I loved about it was that connection and pulling those two threads together. I, it, that to me was like the thing that I, I even remember telling Amy that like, this is, <laughs> this is why this book is amazing. Like you had, I, I never would like no one else. I don't think could pull that together, but yeah, it was, I can see that, that, that influence of that quote in there. I really and I can also that. see and I can also see how a lot of um, maybe people told you that it couldn't work because it's, oh, not, it's not a formula. Yeah. It's not a, yeah. Yeah. They sometimes, um, I believe one of the reactions from one of the um, editors I talked to first was, and this was years before I was like ready to talk to an editor was just literally like, good luck with that. I don't know how you think you're going to pull that off. But just like, I don't, that does not sound like a plausible concept. Um, and I still sometimes get mail from readers, you know, it's not a couple of years after the, after the book has come out, 
Um, and I still get mail from readers and I, some, every now and then I still get a, why do you have to put them in the same story? It should be just this, or it should be just that. And they never agree about what it should just be, right? That depends on your personal preference. Um, but I still get mail from people who are like mad that both stories are in the same book. Okay. Too bad. They're connected, I think. Yeah. And also that shows that maybe you read the whole book. So are you really that mad? That, that seems suspect to me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of like, if you read the whole book, are you really that mad? Exactly. But that's a very good rejoinder to um, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, okay. So we're moving a little bit forward into your reading life now. Um, how many books would you say are on your to be read pile? And are you willing to share any? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I live surrounded by a to-be-read pile, especially now that we're just at home. Yeah. And there's just no, um, and especially now that I can justify everything by saying, look, man, I really need the indie bookstores to survive. Exactly. So obviously I can place another order. supporting them. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, just from where I'm sitting, um, I can see, for example, um, my autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Shapland. Um, I'm really interested in that. That's one of the top of my to-be-read to list. I just started um, Francine Prose's Reading Like a Writer um, because I had never read Middlemarch until quarantine. And, um, really? Oh, interesting. And I just finished it a couple of days ago and was like hard working to finish it. So now I'm listening to, I just started listening to Rebecca Mead's My Life in Middlemarch. And I also grabbed the Francine prose because I was like, at least she talks about Middlemarch. <laughs> so bringing every Middlemarch thing you can together. Everything's coming back to it. Um, also on the physical TBR uh, stack that's kind of to my left um, is Edwin Standicott's uh, The Art of Death from the really beautiful Art of um, series of little Grey Wolf Press craft books. Oh, cool. Um, and I just love that entire series like even again where I'm sitting at my desk um, on my left also is The Art of History by Christopher Graham. Um, I love everything in that series and try to read um, even the ones that talk about poetry. Mark Doty has a beautiful one on the art of description. Charles Baxter has one on the art of subtext. My friend Chris Castellani wrote one on the art of perspective and so a lot of those. I'm sort of trying to spend this summer reading craft books as well as reading book like prose books and just as like a fun immersive study thing so to that end I also have one of my favorite craft books that I was constantly foisting on students this year and then was like you know what I actually haven't read that in years I should probably actually <laughs> look at what I'm telling you to do um which is uh the artful edit by Susan Bell yes I was a couple years ago yeah yeah super good um and there's something very heartening she takes uh, the version of The Great Gatsby that Fitzgerald turned in and goes through the editorial process on it. And um, I am working on the next book and working on a whole bunch of essays. And I just sort of needed a reminder that even Fitzgerald wrote shitty sentences. Like just a little, it's going to be okay. Write your shitty sentences and we'll talk about it later. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. We found, Alex, has your reading changed at all during quarantine? That's something Erin and I have talked about is at first, at least for us, it was really difficult to get into books again, which yeah. was really frustrating and kind of troubling. 
Yeah, I've absolutely had that experience. Um, what saved me was, um, refer back to Chris Castellani again, he gave like a passing mention that he was spending every morning um, reading two chapters of Middlemarch before he did anything else. And I was like, you know what? I need to read The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall, which I've never, I hadn't read before. Um, I needed to read it for the project I'm working on now. And why don't I try it with that? And it was such a pleasure because I would wake up and I was waking up what for me was unnaturally early. I think just like an undercurrent of yes. early days of quarantine anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I live across the street from Maine Med, the biggest hospital in Maine, the biggest hospital in Portland, Maine. Oh and my so gosh. I would wake up and watch the shift change in the morning. Um, because I somehow my body started naturally waking up right when the, the doctor and nurse shift change happened. And so it was like I would get my coffee and kind of stand there and watch them and just like give a moment of silent applause and silent gratitude. Um, and then take Middlemarch, uh, well of loneliness rather at that point, um, and retreat back into like a totally different world. And so that was super helpful. But then I found I couldn't concentrate at all once that period was over, like in terms of reading. Yeah, but I feel like it's been it's been working to a lot like a manageable section of the morning now that I don't have a commute to doing that. So that's I think that's been the biggest change in my reading habit for me. I still am having trouble focusing on a book later in the day, but I at least have that solid like hour or so of reading in the morning. That's so cool. Yeah, we've heard lots is. of numbers of ways of people have got how people have got back into reading. And that's a really, that sounds really nice. Yeah, yeah I don't know what I'm going to do when the world opens back up because I don't want to lose this. Yeah. <laughs> start getting up like super early, oh, make the bus to, to the college where I teach. <laughs> <laughs> well, among the, um, maybe during this quarantine or another time, have you had a book that you've read recently or somewhat recently that surprised you? That you, you know, had uh, maybe it was Middle March, maybe it was something else mm -hmm. that you weren't expecting as much as you got from it. Honestly, uh, The Well of Loneliness um, blew my mind because I had always heard it referred to as an early lesbian novel. Yeah. But it's not quite an early lesbian novel. Stephen would be described, like in the historical terms of the time, as like an invert, which is sort of a mix of our idea of sexuality and gender identity. Mm -hmm. And as someone, trans who is always looking for the seeds of um, narratives that were kind of omitted, um, reading that and being like, where was this? What would have happened if like teenage Alex had had this holy shit? Yeah. Did not know this was a possibility? Um, and so that kind of thing, for sure. I'm actually working on in two essays that relate to that. Um, oh. uh, because I was so like, where has this been all my life? Um, even though it then becomes the most depressing and upsetting book by the end because <laughs> it is doomed because of this. Um, but at least, at least the narrative exists. Yeah, a little bit of representation, even if it's dour. It's sad. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, when you were younger about the wonderful independent booksellers that were helping you. Um, how do you find your book recommendations now? Oh, that's such a great question. The internet? It's <laughs> a wonderful place. <laughs> I think it just comes around. And there's, um, and there's also this like habit of rediscovery in my bookshelves where I'm like, oh, I bought that intending to read it. 
I don't have an organized TBR system. I just have like a throw it on the shelf and someday you'll notice it's there kind of thing. And so um, it sounds like that's working. You someday yeah. notice it. Yeah. And I had the good fortune to read for the Lambda Literary Awards and for the Penn Open Book Award this year. Oh, wow. Um, so that was like 65 books just showing up. Um, Holy and so that that was how I got my book recommendations. <laughs> and right, and now there's also a lot of um, books to blurb. So Meredith Talison's gorgeous memoir, Fairest, um, comes out today. And I had the really good fortune of reading um, an arc of that before it came out. Um, one of the books I'm most excited about for this summer is uh, actually by a former student, um, Michelle Balder, wrote a book called um, Is Rape a Crime? Oh, wow which is an investigation, a manifesto, and also a memoir. Um, and it, uh, it'll be out this summer. It is a devastating book. I mean, it's just, it messes you up in all the best ways. Because her point, of course, is that if it's not prosecuted, yeah. um, it's really a crime. It's yeah. really a crime. And I remember reading, and Michelle was a student of mine in a, a, a course I used to teach called The Memoir Incubator that has a couple of books coming out and Dolores Johnson um, has a wonderful memoir coming out from that called um, Say I'm Dead, which is a line that her mother told her to say when she went in search of her missing family. Uh, so all these different books that just, I don't know, they show up in the mail. It's like one of the best things about publishing a book that I feel like people don't tell you enough about. If you finish your book and you publish it, other people will send you books. <laughs> all you could ever dream of right? exactly. like, yeah. well thinking about your book you know um erin actually brought it to my attention she recommended it in our podcast and talked about like we, what you were saying the, that fascinating uh combination of two kinds of books in a way um and then it she raved about it so much i read it myself and i loved it it was wonderful thank you, Paul. Do you i mean like you said this was kind of unique in a way and that it was combining a, a number of genres, a number of different writing styles, but did you have any kind of writing that inspired you towards that or anything that you looked towards to help you kind of bring that together? Oh, absolutely. Um, I had a professor in, in my MFA program um, that assigned Michael Gilmore a shot in the heart. And Michael Gilmore was the brother of, is the brother of Gary Gilmore. Oh. Gary Gilmore was the first person executed when the U.S. reinstated the death penalty. And, and he, asked to be, he asked to die by being shot in the heart. So he was executed by firing squad. Uh, little known fact, actually, that's where Nike's slogan comes from. Um, just do it are Michael Gilmore's la uh, Gary Gilmore's last words. <laughs> I'm always like, here's a bit of trivia that I don't know what to do with. But Gary Gilmore's last word, the ad writer on the account was at his desk uh, that morning reading the paper and read about the execution, read the last words of Gary Gilmore, and that became the Nike slogan. I don't know how to feel about yeah. that. That's very It's uh, one of the oddest things that when you work <laughs> on a book about a murder and a death penalty case for many years, you end up with all these little tidbits of trivia about where capital punishment shows up in American culture. Wow. It's an unexpected place. Mm -hmm. um, but so that book, uh, Shot in the Heart, um, because it's a memoir of his brother but, and his relationship with his brother and his family. And it's really him trying to understand how it could be that his brother 
committed such horrible violence and then also asked to die by such violence. But in order to tell this story, he goes back into the history of Utah. Um, he takes ghosts literally. There's a ghost in the prologue and then there are ghosts throughout, um, which I'm sure influenced me in how I treated Oscar uh, in the book, who was revealing Lee's um, brother. Mm -hmm. And so that, I remember reading that and feeling like, wait, you can do this? And it really, it's, it's the book that got me interested in the possibilities of nonfiction. And so, because it felt so much like a novel, and yet it was, of course, true. Uh, so that book, and then, you know, people often tell me that the fact of a body has some kind of an unusual structure. And I think to myself, like I think so many writers do, uh, you think it's a new structure. It's actually a mashup. <laughs> I mean, it's a mashup of um, oh, a whole bunch of things. A book by Kristen Iverson called Full Body Burden that looks at um, her family, but also looks at nuclear waste disposal in Rocky Flats, Truman Capote's in Cold Blood, which is a more direct inspiration, obviously. Um, when I was working on the book, I would constantly try to psych myself up by saying that I was going to write something like in cold blood if Capote had been honest about his personal stake in the story. <laughs> you know, no problem, just quickly take him on, it's fine. <laughs> Justin St. Germain, son of a gun, mm -hmm. uh, solved a huge structural problem for me, or I was like, the third part of the fact of the body has a different structure than the other parts of it. Um, and that kind of showed me that you could break and change the structure midway through the book, which is what Son of a Gun does. Um, when it came to write the third section of The Fact of a Body, which is shaped around like a road trip, I, um, I did a paragraph by paragraph count of Michael Paternini's Driving Mr. Albert, which is about driving Albert Einstein's brain across the country. And then, uh, because I was like, how does he digress? How does he road trip? I'm a big believer, as can probably be clear, that the books that are the most helpful as a writer are rarely the ones that have the most content similarity because then you're just involved in the story. You can't see it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're taking it apart for structure, that is sometimes easier to see on other books. But I will say uh, one last thing is um, Eric Larson, Devil in the White City, because I kept trying to write long chapters and it just wasn't happening. And I was like, all right, if you're, if, if I accept that this book wants to be in short chapters, that's so many potential exit points for a reader. How do I think about how to make you turn those pages and how is it's all going to come together? And so that book was a big influence. So wow. yeah, those are my like, those are the ancestral books of the fact of the body. <laughs> wow. That's such a good point though about um, taking any and every book for its structure, no matter if there's content similarity, I could see how you could pull so many different things from each of those books. That's really cool. Teaching really helped me think about that because I was constantly prescribing students to take apart a couple of books. And then I was stuck and I was like, oh, I guess I better take apart some books. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so at the end, we like to ask like five questions that maybe aren't necessarily related to reading. But the first one is, uh, what's your most memorable fan interaction? And that can be touching, funny, weird, creepy. No, I, I know exactly <laughs> what. Oh, you know exactly. Right. I know exactly what. Um, when the book had been out, 
maybe a couple of months, um, I got an email from a lawyer in Mexico City asking to get on the phone. And um, I got on the phone with him. He was very emotional. He said, I just finished reading your book. And I have been hired by the family of a 12-year-old girl who has just revealed that her grandfather molested her all through her growing up. The girl wants to press charges. The family wants to pretend it never happened and I'll have to deal with it. And I was thinking that that would be the right thing to do, but I heard you on a podcast when I was driving, when I was visiting the US, and then I found the book, and now I'm worried that maybe it won't actually go away for her, even if we pretend that it, it's over. Mm. And we talked, and as he, he described so much about the situation where the little girl had, they'd had even put her through a deposition, and everything she had said had, had you know, held up, and she was still pushing for it, she was still wanting and prosecuted. And I was just like, you have to listen to her. Like, you can't them get all choked up talking about this. Yeah. You yeah. cannot put her through all that and have her clearly be saying she wants this prosecuted and you cannot pretend that this didn't happen. Um, and we talked a couple of times because he would convey things back to the parents and then he would come back to me with questions. Um, and in the end, we decided to listen to the little girl and to prosecute. You know, there's a lot of weird aspects of having a memoir out in the world. And at the time, I was very deeply in the thick of the weird aspects. Um, and I would have days where I was like, this is really hard. And I, you know, um, it's hard to have it out there. I'm super happy to have it out there, proud to have it out there. But there was a period, right, right when you, right when your body registers that the thing you've kept secret for so long is now public. Yeah. Very public. Um, and I, and that call came right in that period for me. And I just, I remember writing to my agent, to my editor, and to my publicist, just saying, whatever else happens, I, you guys like, made this possible. Like, this is what happened. So um, that, that would be the most memorable one. Holy shit. Yeah, I can see why. No, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I was always like, whatever else happens, at least, at least this. Whatever happens, this did this. Um, when I was stuck on a later... Uh, portion of the book and having trouble um, writing openly because I was just feeling raw. Um, I once wrote a note card and stuck it to my wall. I was at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts at the time and the note card just said like write the story she couldn't. Um, I use they them pronouns but I still think of child me. Write the story she couldn't and um, I thought about that when I heard about this little girl. Oh my god. Yeah, that's incredible. That that has to be such an amazing thing to to live with. And we've talked to, or we've wondered, especially with memoir writers or at, or parts of memoir writers, if it if it is a negative experience in some ways, like meeting fans or having fans put their personal experiences maybe on you or try to relate in some ways. But that sounds incredible. I mean, it can, certainly can be negative. It's tough with a book about trauma because on the one hand, you, you don't want to take on people's trauma, but man, you do want to make them feel heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, well, maybe, maybe a slightly lighter topic. <laughs> um, when, you were, when you were in the, the thick of it, when your book was coming out, was there a, a, an author, someone that you wanted to meet, you did get to meet, and it was a good experience, someone you perhaps looked up to, someone you really enjoyed reading? 
I'm really grateful to Hannah Tinty for the moment at the party outside at the Miami Book Fair <laughs> when she turned to me and was and I was like blathering idiot because I love Hannah Tinty's books. Like I obsessively love Hannah Tinty's books. And she turned to me because I was being a blathering idiot and was just like, you know, we've met several times this year now because we keep going to the same we kept going to the same book fair. So books come out the same year. We could just be normal now. <laughs> and I was like I will try. <laughs> no guarantee. No guarantee. No guarantee. No guarantee. I just, you know, I have many feelings about the 12 lives of Samuel Hawley, um, her latest novel. Uh, and so I will try. Um, I'm sure there are more, but that's, that's the, uh, I'm sure there are many more. Like one of the great gifts of having a book come out is, is getting to read, getting to meet people who you admire fiercely. Um, but that was definitely a moment. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about how your um, reading changed a little bit during the quarantine, but would you say that it, your joy or love or reading habits have changed since you became a published writer? Yeah, that's such a great question that I haven't thought about. That's such a great question. I think I'm mostly just grateful. Like I'm more aware now that a book is somebody's baby and they spent so long on it and it re represents all this hope that they put on the world and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to love it um in, indeed it shouldn't mean that we all love it right like then it's it's probably not very good if it doesn't piss somebody off um <laughs> but i i think um i am more in tune with how beautiful it is that when i look at my bookshelf right it's a rec my bookshelves are records of other people's dreams and hopes and love and caretaking. Um, it's a, it's mind blowing when you think about how much goes into every work of art. And then we have like a bookshelf and it's so many of them. Um, so I think a, a, a deeper awareness of that. So even our um, unachievable to be read files, Aaron, their hopes and dreams. So I'm going to call myself an art collector now. <laughs> It's an art collection. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. We are. We are. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Do you have a book, Alex, that you think everyone should read? I'm going to be such a middle March obsessive right now. I can't help it. <laughs> like, I fall in love with books. You know what? Yeah, I do. Though, Lacey Johnson's The Other Side. Oh my God, I just read that. That was so intense. It's so good at capturing so much like dissociation the trauma of sexual assault we have such a a culture that won't look at that stuff just won't look at that stuff in any sort of thoughtful way or any sort of sustained way um and that book man whenever my students i don't i don't teach it in my classes because i for me reading it was such an intensely emotional experience that i don't want to foist um that on 12 undergrads and make them have that emotional experience at the same time. Like that just doesn't seem um, almost like responsible, you know? Um, but inevitably the last day of class, students always ask me what I didn't teach. And that list could be so long, but I always say, look, here's the book that I wish I could teach because I think we would live in a different world if everyone read it. Well, the other thing uh, that we do at the end is talk about things we're obsessed with, pop culture things, whether that's like TV shows, movies, music. So is there a pop culture obsession that you have that you'd want to share? Absolutely. Um, 
I think on my mind right now, I just saw last night, I saw the Jillian Anderson, um, uh, why is this out of my head? Tennessee Williams, Stella. Ooh. Yeah. yeah what, what, the name design. Thank you. Yes. I watched it last night. I don't know. <laughs> All these dreams like make experiences weird because yes. they're not happening in places. Mm-hmm. A dear friend just texted me yesterday. Nothing else, just places. Remember places? I was like, oh, God. I just remember on the screen. Anyway, Street Crying Desire. And Jillian Anderson um, is, in the, is in Blanche Dubois' role um, in this. You have until, I suspect this is going to air after Thursday, so it will already be gone from the internet, unfortunately. Oh. But it's part of the National Theater Live series. Um, and uh, I was reminded of how much I love her performance in sex education. Yes. If anyone out there has not watched this and you need like a fun, but smart, but fun, well-written, well-edited, just two season so far show on Netflix, Sex Education. Oh, I can, yeah, I highly recommend as well. That's so good. Well, Alex, those were our questions. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we had a good time. This was, yeah, this was wonderful just to talk about books and your experiences and Thank you for joining us. Oh, it was such a pleasure to chat with you both. Um, and thanks for like reading my book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> so you want to gush? I'm leaving some time for you to gush. I, I feel like I maintained a level that I should keep. Like I did okay. <laughs> I didn't have to like just leave and go in the corner and like have a panic attack. <laughs> uh, I so appreciate it. So, Aaron, I mentioned that I expected you to fangirl hard. And you worked really hard not to. You were doing great. But when Alex said, great question, a few times when you asked a question, I really thought you were going to lose your shit. I almost did. Yeah. Because... I don't, I don't even have a good reason except that I'm such I was a fan. Watch, yeah, I was watching you on the Zoom camera and I was watching your face and I could, I thought I maybe could see like you trying to tamp it down. Yeah, I was trying to keep it under because I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to be that crazy person, Mm-mm. but inside I knew, I'm inso- that crazy I knew inside you were yeah. and you did great. Uh, so the other thing that I loved from that interview is when they were talking about going into a bookstore mm-hmm day after day and asking if a book came out overnight, like just no concept of the publishing world. That antidote was simultaneously awesome <laughs> and like made me feel so seen. Like yes. I could picture myself doing yes. that without any idea. And again, which we talk about all the time, independent booksellers, independent bookstores, yes. you guys are awesome. Yes. That's killer. That, that they, they treated just, it so great. Yeah, here, and, find yeah. another book. <laughs> Yeah, that was incredible. Um, I really liked when Alex was talking about their upbringing and the idea that being a writer was something unfathomable, like being a unicorn. I I really think I felt that way growing up too. I imagine maybe you did as well that, you know, we were meant to read the books and not necessarily to write them. Mm-hmm. And there was a real clear dichotomy there. I, I really liked that. Yeah. Uh, I also was 
fascinated by this part because it was one of the things that I truly love about the book was mm-hmm. that it combined an idea of a memoir and a true crime and it made it twisty and connected in a way that I don't think we think about a lot mm-hmm. but people told them that that was crazy yeah and that, that was not the way that the book should be written and that still blows my mind when yeah. authors say that we've heard other authors talk about rejection or criticism that they've gotten one I'm still floored by people that think that they know better yeah especially someone's personal story and two that after that good of a book comes out that you had anything to say about it yeah. except everybody should read this yeah yeah, it really shows like how narrow-minded and short-sighted yeah. the publishing industry publishing industry can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I uh, we were as we often do with authors, we ask them about their uh, to be read piles, and I liked that Alex said it was totally out of control. But during the pandemic. It was a great way to um, use an excuse of saying, I got to support the local indie bookstores. Yes. I get that. I was there too. Yeah. So what if our to-be-read piles become ridiculous and out of control? Yeah. Let it be. It's good to know it's not just us. Eh? Mm-hmm. I, the, another touching part uh, was when they were talking about the well of loneliness and the first time that they found some trans representation and thinking back to growing up and what that would have been like if... You know, they were talking specifically about their experience, mm-hmm. what it would have been like for them to discover that earlier. But that really hit a note with me. I think that a lot of us can have that yeah. feeling that the first time we read something that we really connect to, you can't help but say, gosh, I wish I came across this yes. sooner. Yes. I wish I knew that there was more things like this. I wish I knew I would could have done this, that, and this better or different or I had the right words mm-hmm. or the right way to express myself. Yeah, that was really touching. And it, and it shows just how much representation matters, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, I liked Alex's honesty and saying, like, get this. When you publish a book, they send you more, which <laughs> just made me very happy. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, so that's great. one of the side effects you don't really hear a lot. Yeah. And what it's a, a beautiful perk. word. Yeah. Terrific. <laughs> um, as we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, and now you're at the end, so I hope that you really listen to this part, but um, probably one of the most memorable fan interaction stories that we've heard in a long time. Yeah. Um, talking about the lawyer in Mexico City that was representing a young girl and what that book meant to his ability to represent her, what it meant to that girl's family. That was I was we were a mess yeah like, I was it emotional was, that was yes yeah. Alex was getting a little um teary-eyed you definitely were I was like oh my god how how do I keep this together how do we go yes. from it was an incredible incredible story yeah yeah um I, I I think finally I really loved the book and or the idea and you said this in the interview um, where when you look at a bookshelf you're actually looking at someone's creation you're looking at their art mm-hmm. and it's such a beautiful idea that um, it's such a physical representation of so many people's hard work. And I mean, it just makes me want to fill my shelves more. So yes. maybe not great on the pocketbook, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a good justification. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's, I think that's a really cool way to view books, you know, because sometimes we can get co- so caught up in whether we, you know, specifically that book reached us or we yeah. felt something about it. And we forget that no matter what the amount of time and energy and pouring of yourself into a book is 
is a work of art. Yeah, it is. Your shelf. I'm at something yeah. to honor. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We will be back next Wednesday with our regular weekly themed episodes. In the meantime, you can head to our website, broadsandbooks.com, and check out all of our past bonus episodes. Subscribe now and you'll get them all direct to you. Happy reading. I'm up again. Same night, another dream. Before trying this recording thing, I didn't remember much of anything of these dreams. I didn't remember much from any of the women. And one night of doing this, and it's broken things open. The dreams are, they're in me, and they're they are coming out of me, and... To me, I am not broken. I am the most whole, most real. Their despair. I cause their despair. I wait for the word. I wait for the word. Witch. 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 Look at the mad woman in her cage. She was a woman with holes inside her. That was the heaviest factor. The final evidence. The heart of the issue. Somehow, you understand this. You. You. You hear me. Wherever you are, whatever this is, you... This isn't a dream journal anymore. It's not. That's just, it's just fact. <laughs> because now this is, this is some sort of record. What are these dreams? Maybe there's a better question. Who are these women? Weird Woman is a Broads and Books production. All nine episodes are available January 10th. Listen and subscribe to Weird Woman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. That's W-Y-R-D Woman, wherever you listen to podcasts.